ask that God would speak to us this morning. God would speak through me, through His Word, and we'd not be distracted by anything else. And So let me just uh, open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we want to give this morning over to You. And we pray that as Christmas draws near, Lord, that our hearts would be prepared for it. I pray that we can begin preparing that right now. I know that we become distracted so easily. But Lord, I pray that you would just maybe speak this, this story of, of the birth of Christ in a fresh way into our minds this morning. We give this over to you in your name. Amen. Well, we've all heard this town ain't big enough for the both of us. And I, I'm not, honestly, I don't even know where that comes from. I'm sure it sounds like some Western flick. And, and, I, and although Matthew 2 is not a Western flick, it's almost a very appropriate title. Okay, it's... Although King Herod never spoke those words, he pretty much communicated that very thought by his actions. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. Now, I've titled my sermon, Still No Room for a King, and if you remember a couple weeks ago, um, my, my, the title of my sermon was No Room for a King. And as I studied this passage, I was just blown away by the fact that, you know what? Christ's birth came, and it's amazing how, how the hearts of the people... We're not prepared for it. And there was no room for this Messiah in many people's hearts. And so I want to talk about that this morning. And, and I hope that my prayer is that this Christmas you would make room in your heart, in your life, in your household, in your Christmas traditions for the King that is above all kings, King Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, and the ultimate promise keeper. If you remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago as well. That God is the ultimate promise keeper. People have made promises to you and have broken them. You've made promises to others and failed them. And we've disappointed each other often. But God is the ultimate promise keeper. And this morning I'd like to look at Matthew 2 and the various responses to Jesus' birth. How is he welcomed? And I pray that um, we'd be able to recognize in our own heart. How do we welcome the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ every season? Well, um, we read in, in Luke 2 that um, there were a couple of responses already. The shepherds came and they worshipped. And then there was the non-response of Bethlehem. And we're going to look at a few more of those this morning. So we'll start in uh, Matthew 2, verse 1 and 1 through 12. I, I've um, titled this portion, Worship of the King. The Worship of the King. Um, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now let me just look at the first half of this verse. 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as we mentioned before. And actually, um, if you notice, not all the gospel accounts point this out. Only Matthew and Luke who, who talk about the birth of Jesus Christ. But to Matthew, this is an important fact. Bethlehem. What was so important about Bethlehem? Well, if you start to, to study Matthew, you will see that Matthew portrays Jesus Christ as the king. It's a great image. He portrays him as the king. And so it's important that he mentions Bethlehem because Bethlehem is known as the city of David. The town of David. It's also the place that Jacob, back in the book of Genesis, buried his beloved Rachel, Genesis 35:19. Bethlehem is also the place that Ruth met and married Boaz in Ruth 1:22 and 2:4. And if you remember, Ruth and Boaz were the grandparents of King David. And then uh, we read in 1 Samuel 17 that Bethlehem is the place that David grew up. And then finally, Micah, in Micah 5, 2, says that the Messiah will come from this town of Bethlehem. So Bethlehem was such an important piece of the story, especially in Matthew's account, as he is portraying him as the king. This is the same place that King David came from. So do not look, overlook the significance of Bethlehem. And on top of this, if we were to read Matthew 1, we'd realize that, that Matthew traces his, uh, the genealogy of Jesus back to King David. And he also highlights the virgin birth. This baby was special. He was the Messiah. He was the king. And that is the point. But as we continue on, um, it said, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born the king of... Uh, the king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. There's so much tradition, right? We saw in the PowerPoint the song, We Three Kings. There's so much tradition um, surrounding the, the, the wise men, the magi. And most of our tradition actually comes from Christmas carols and Christmas cards. That's what we know about them. You may have like a nativity scene under your tree or somewhere in the house with the wise men. And this is all that, in, in, in our minds, oftentimes this is all, all that we know about the wise men. Our traditions say that they were, they were kings. It says that there were how many of them? Three, right? Some people um, have heard that they represent Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's uh, children who represent many nations. That's why one is portrayed as Ethiopian. And we've also heard, well, some of us have heard that uh, their names are Casper. Uh, heard he was very friendly. Uh, Belshazzar and Melchior. And we've heard these different traditions. Um, but that's what they are, it's just traditions. Uh, these things cannot really be verif- verified in Scripture. But we do know a few things about these wise men. And I think it's important for us to understand a little bit about who these, these people were, especially in relation to them coming to worship Christ the King. The wise men or the magi, maybe your translation has it. We read about them actually first in uh, Daniel 2. And uh, in Daniel 2, we read that they hold high positions uh, in the Babylonian Empire. And Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, uh, 
threatened them and said, you know, tell me my dream and interpret it or you're going to die. And Daniel came in and, and God um, revealed the dream and the interpretation to Daniel and spared all their lives. And, of course, um, scholars believe that by the time Jesus was born, of course, the Magi were very different at this point. Okay, they were... The Babylonian Empire obviously had fallen in. But, but there were still some, uh, some similarities. They were foreigners, and they were involved in astrology, dream interpretation, the study of sacred writings, the pursuit of wisdom, and magic. In other words, they were pagan. Perhaps graduates of Hogwarts, I do not know. But they were pagan. These men were not followers of the Most High God. They were unclean, uncircumcised, pagans, immersed in the occult. But yet we read here that they ask, where is he who has been born the King of the Jews? And that just really blows me away, especially after reading Luke and reading how the Bethlehem, Bethlehem had no clue of what was going on. Like I said, People, the people next door to Jesus just went about their day, not knowing that God had come in the form of a man right next to them. And yet, foreigners, pagans, they've come to look for the king of the Jews. For me, as I think about this, it's a challenge to, my, to myself and to my heart. I'm not a pagan. I know what Christ has done for me. Yet, how do we approach Christmas? Do we approach it with this enthusiasm that we see the wise men having? Do we set apart time for, for worship? I promise you I wouldn't forget it. Sorry. Do we set aside time for worship? Um, this Christmas Eve service, like I said before, it's not merely tradition time for us to prepare our hearts for the next day. That's why we invite you to come. And if you're not coming to this, then, then the encouragement is to set apart time with your family and friends to reflect, to reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, they saw a star, and the star had led them to Israel. Now, the star is something that really baffles a lot of people. A lot of questions raised because of the star. But actually, it's quite simple to explain. The heavenly bodies were aligned in such a way that Pluto and Jupiter, along with Tatooine, the Dagobah system, and Narnia... No, seriously, we don't, we don't know. We don't know what, what went on with the star. But you're going to hear explanation upon explanation. I'm sure that if you Googled it, you're going to find article upon article upon article. What happened? And, and people who know, who you know, are involved in astronomy and, and know these things way better than me will probably try to come up with some sort of an explanation. But really, at the end of the day, we don't know. And John, I like John Piper. He points out the fact that, that we love to focus on minimal facts and the marginal. And, and we become obsessed with, well, how did that work? And really, it doesn't matter. All we know is that somehow it happened, and we know that it was divine. God is leading these men. What other reason would they be seeking out the king of the Jews? 
People may try to explain it from um, passages like uh, number, Numbers uh, 2417, Balaam's prophecy. It says, um, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. But personally, that doesn't really even clear things up for me either. It still raises a lot of questions. So when I read a passage like this, and when you read it, it's okay to be curious, and if you want to do some research, just don't get wrapped up in, man, I've got to make this work in my mind. Because God chose not to reveal how that actually worked. We just know that God was guiding them over here. It was an amazing event. Well, we move on to verse 3 here, and it says, When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Herod was troubled. When I read that, I'm like, what an idiot. I mean, seriously. This guy really has little excuse for, for, for his, the way he's acting. He is troubled that the one who came to save him from his sin was born. It's so backwards. But you know what? Actually, I think we need to understand a little bit of who King Herod was to kind of understand why he would be troubled. Herod the Great is what they called him, which is really ironic because we know him best for the slaughtering of children. Not so great in our eyes, is it? And he's the first of several Herods in the New Testament. His father, Antipater, was appointed by Julius Caesar, appointed and then appointed his son as prefect in Galilee. And, and Herod started to gain popularity and respect as he would um, suppress Jewish guerrilla bands who um, continued to fight against their foreign rulers. So he started to gain respect, and he, started, uh, he was viewed as somebody who could handle the pressure and who was tough. Interestingly enough, Herod the Great was only half Jewish. He married a Jewish woman named Miriam to please the Jews, and he did other things to please the Jews, like uh, give back money during times of economic hardships. See, stimulus packages aren't new. <laughs> during the Great Famine of 25 BC, which some of you may remember, he melted down gold objects in the palace a joke. I did like it. Um, during the famine, he melted down gold objects in the palace to buy, to buy food for the, for the poor. He did what was necessary to keep the morale high at times. Well, so far he sounds like a great guy. Ah, oh, he is great. All right. However, he was an ambitious man. Um, well, some other great things I should point out. He built structures, he built theaters, he built racetracks. He started the reconstruction of the temple. He beautified and lavished cities. He, he benefited the empire greatly. Yet, all of the great things he did could never erase or mask the malicious acts that will forever tarnish his reputation as Herod the Great. Herod was a man who was fearful of losing the throne. He was paranoid... He was suspicious that people, even 
were, were, were going to take over the throne, even people who were close to him, and he did not hesitate to kill even his own family members if he thought that they were going to take over his throne. Well, it started with his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, the high priest. He killed him because he suspected that he was going to overthrow Herod. He executed him by drowning, and then he provided a magnificent funeral in which he, he allegedly pretended to weep at. He also ended up killing his wife, Miriam, and three sons. Okay. And if that weren't bad enough, shortly before his death, to ensure a proper sense of mourning in the country, he ordered the arrest of many citizens and commanded that they be executed on the day that he died just to make sure that people are not rejoicing over his death. Do you want to know why Herod was troubled by the rumors that a king was born in Israel? Well, he was paranoid about losing his throne, even to a baby. He would do anything to preserve his evil reign, even execute his, his own flesh and blood. And one ancient writer claimed that Caesar Augustus Okay, who was over him, <laughs> one time said, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. All right? You would imagine that Herod, in order to please the Jews, would have refrained from eating a pig or sacrificing a pig. So, in that sense, a pig was safer than his own sons. He was not a nice guy. He had a reputation for being evil. Verses 4 to 6, I go on and say, And assembling, this is Herod, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you shall, be, or for you shall from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod, I guess unfamiliar with scripture, not surprisingly, summoned religious officials, religious leaders. He wanted to know where this threat was, was going to be born. He'd heard the rumors through the grapevine. Born is the king of the Jews, and he wanted to know, where is this baby born? I want to know. I can't have this threat growing up under my rule. You can see the wheels turning almost in his mind as he's asking this question. Where is this baby born? And um, they, they, they tell him, they quote scripture from Micah and other passages and they say Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the place. So Herod's gaze now is fixed on Bethlehem. What is he going to do about this? We'll move down to verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he, said, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently uh, for the child, and when you have found him, bring, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. No. No. He was lying to them. He was devious. Interesting that he did it in secret. Sin is often done in secret, right? 
He wasn't going to do this publicly. He wasn't going to announce, oh, I want to worship this king. He's not going to do that publicly. He knows people wouldn't believe it anyway. He wanted to know when they first saw the star. He needed to understand, how old might this baby be by this point? His treachery runs deep. Why would the wise men have reason to doubt his intention? I'm sure that when they came to Israel, they were probably expecting more enthusiasm and more excitement, and yet they received none of that. They were almost alone in their quest to find this Messiah. So when they found somebody interested, why would they have question to I mean, why would they have any reason to question this or doubt this? They didn't realize that Herod desired to murder him. Verses 9 and 10. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them, and, uh, I'm sorry, the star that they had seen went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's that mysterious star again. But now, it's actually guiding them in a, in, in a more specific way to the place where Jesus was, um, was at. And again, not hard to believe, right? God is the Lord of all, all of creation and He can do with it as He, as he pleases. And, and um, this is definitely... This could possibly have been a miracle, I should say. And, you know, we, use, we misuse the word miracle all the time. You know, we think that um, we need $1,000 to, to pay for our school bill um, and we receive $1,000 in our mailbox uh, just from some unknown person. And we look at that and we say, that's a miracle. By definition, that's not a miracle. That's God's providence. Well, God's providence occurs all the time in our lives. He does it in sometimes very dramatic ways but a miracle is a suspension of natural law. The splitting of the Red Sea, that was a miracle. The sun standing still in Joshua, that's a miracle. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a miracle. And perhaps this was another miracle. So it's not hard to believe um, that this was a special star that, that, that God had brought about. The response from these foreigners concerning these events surrounding this chapter is so different from those of Israel. It says that when they saw the star, they rejoiced. But not, they didn't just rejoice. It says they did so exceedingly. And not just with joy, but with great joy. You get the sense that they weren't just mildly excited or amused. They were beside themselves completely excited and again I have to ask the question do we approach Christmas with the same enthusiasm we might say but we've heard the story so many times and that's the, that's the danger of hearing the story of Christmas a lot is that sometimes we lose something in it it's, the same thing happens with the gospel right Sometimes somebody can be presenting the gospel and we're almost falling asleep instead of rejoicing. What an amazing story. 
Verse 11 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Once again, the debate is on how old was Jesus. And really, it's not important to the story. I know, I don't think we can dogmatically say one way or the other, well, Jesus was probably about two. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was only months old. We do not know. The Bible does not tell us specifically. But all we know is he was young, and the wise men came, and they worshipped him. I mean... Could you imagine bringing out one of the babies from the nursery and placing them on the and people coming and worshiping this child? It would, it's an amazing thought in my mind to worshiping a little baby. But they were worshiping him because they knew he was the king. And, um, and the interesting thing is, perhaps they didn't even realize fully what they, all that Jesus was yet they came in faith and, and worshipped. In the two gospel accounts of Jesus' birth, only a handful of people worship and rejoice over the baby. This, uh, this list includes Zechariah, right? Remember Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, Simeon, Anna, the shepherds, and now the wise men. It's a short list and blows my mind every time I think of how overlooked the birth of Jesus was. The gifts that they gave were kingly gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they were costly. And perhaps as Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, these gifts helped pay the way. Were they bribing Jesus with this? You know what's funny? I, I think that we, sometimes without saying it, think that we can bribe God. We believe that if we give to God, maybe he'll give back to us a little bit more or help us out in our situation. You know, it, it is a backwards view of God, right? Because God does that anyway, doesn't he? But we feel like, well, we just need to gain a little bit more favor just in case. You know, it's kind of, the, it's kind of a very political way to think about it. You know, God, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. We're going to be good here. Is that what these men were doing? But really, can we bribe God? Now, what we do is we offer him our tithes. We offer him um, our money, our time, our efforts. But can we really give God anything that he does not already have? Therefore, if God owns everything, if we're just giving back to God what is already his, how can we bribe him? How can we, in doing so, gain favor with God? We can't. That's why it's so, rich, it's so backwards to hoard our riches. To say, I'm not going to give back to God, but it's His. He was the one who gave it to you in the first place. And I believe it is so sinful for us to take our money at Christmas time and spend it on each other and, ne and neglect God. It baffles my mind that around Christmas time, oftentimes we, we, we see the offering go, go down. Why? That is so backwards. We're taking what God has given us and hoarding it. Just so that we can spoil one another. One another. 
spoil our, our children. It's exactly what God doesn't want us to do. I don't believe that the wise men were doing this. I believe that they were giving in worship. They were giving of themselves. And even though they may have not fully understood who Jesus was, they sacrificed. Side note, by the way, um, the three gifts often... Um, that, that's often the reason why people believe there are only three kings, but uh, once again, that's not proof that there are only three or three wise men or whatever. Um, traditions. Um, the three wise men, uh, but there could have been more. Maybe there was one wise man who was a little broken, so he went in with the other one and bought the myrrh. I don't know. Okay, we don't know. So, um, verse 12, then. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay. Um, and so, they escaped. And um, they realize now that Herod was not sincere. We don't know the content exactly of what was told to them. We just know that they, they got out, that they went a different way so that they would not be confronted by Herod. And who knows what Herod would have done to them had he caught them trying to escape. So they went a different way. But it's, a, it's an amazing thing to see that God here began preserving his promise of the Messiah. He started by sending the, the wise men a different way. Well, I see three different responses in this passage. Perhaps we can relate to one of them. Hopefully we can relate to the third one the most. Or at least make it a goal to relate to this third one. The first one is the response of Israel. Indifference. Isn't it an amazing thing that when the wise men came and they said, where is the king of the Jews? that was born? Nobody followed them. Nobody is going with them saying, what? I want to see this too. I want to worship as well. It didn't strike them that, that foreigners are coming into their country to worship their king. Indifference. Indifference. There's the response of Herod. Jealousy. He feels the threat. Instead of wanting to worship the king, he was troubled. He desired to know the location of Christ. Not to worship, but to destroy him. Or there's the third response, the wise men, worship. And could it be that such a group of men put so much effort to seek out the newborn king and worship him? Could it be true that this happened? And could it be true that although we confess that we know God and we know Jesus Christ is our King that we do not put this much effort into knowing Him. They traveled from far away. They came with gifts. They came into an unknown country. They went out of their way to worship. And like I said before, and perhaps they didn't even have the full picture of who this baby really was, that He was God incarnate. To me, though, this shows that God is not just the God of the Jews, but the God of all of mankind, that these Gentiles came to worship the King. And I believe that Matthew was pointing that out as well, that his, God's own people, clueless, 
what was happening. The Gentiles, though, came and worshipped. That salvation was open to all men. One of the family traditions that, that I really appreciate is that on Christmas morning, um, we, uh, growing up, we, we would read the, uh, one of the birth stories before we opened the gifts. And I think that my parents are trying to be intentional in just making sure that we don't forget why we're even doing all of this. We don't forget that Jesus is actually the center of it. Pray and say amen, and then I would go and rip open my gift with... um, I don't know, whatever. Okay, um, (laughs) the second point... what happens when I try to come up with a joke on the fly. Okay, my second point. <laughs> Matthew 2, Matthew 2, 13 to 18. I call this the threat on the king. So we have the worship of the king by the, by the wise men. Here we have the threat on the king. Verses 13 through beginning of 15 says this, Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Remained there to the death of Herod. Once again, God is warning in a dream. And he warns Joseph and says, Take your wife and her child and flee to Egypt. Which was about 90 miles away. But we know 90 miles in those days, a difficult journey. So they left. They left at night. Make sure there are no witnesses. Make sure there's nobody spying. And they were off to um, to Egypt. Now, Egypt is an interesting place. It's a place that, that has much history with Israel. And um, in a few moments, I want to kind of um, show some of the similarities between um, even Moses and Jesus. And, um, but, but first, um, let me just, um, <clears throat> just say this, that we see Joseph here, once again, obeying, obeying God, believing Him, and believing His promises. And once again, we see God preserving His promise. He sent the wise men away, and now He's sending Mary, Joseph, and Jesus away to, um, to protect them. But, but why Egypt? Why Egypt? Well, 15b, or the way I have it marked, says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This was done to fulfill prophecy, Hosea 2.15. And again, God is just fulfilling prophecy. He continues to do that. No prophecy unfulfilled is basically God's, God's policy, as you will see throughout Scripture. It just gives, to me, it gives me confidence that whatever he promises us, he's going to keep it. In verse 16, Herod 
when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, and you can just imagine, just imagine the moment he found out that he was tricked. It says he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Like I said, we don't know how old Jesus was. Apparently neither did Herod. He was not going to take a risk. That star had appeared two years before this, and so he was just going to make sure he got everybody. And he wiped out every child two years old and younger. He knew where to go, right? Bethlehem. He had all the information he needed. He had gathered it up, and now is the time to strike. Bethlehem, two years and younger. A boy, he's going to die. And, 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 and he, this was carried out. And if I try to, to make it a little bit more personal in my life, I, I try to imagine a soldier coming to my door and ripping my son Reuben away from me and executing him because there is some king who is delusional, some king who is hungry for power and who sees my son as a threat to his throne. You know, the thing is, Herod was delusional. How can you thwart God's plans? How can you really kill the Messiah? How can you kill God's son? if you're not given permission to. Though it then comes as no surprise that a man like Herod, though, would have done such a thing, as we read before. And actually, um, history tells us that even other people looked at Herod and just, they were just appalled by his actions. How many were murdered? I know I've been under the impression that it was hundreds. And I think I even said that at youth group on, um, on, on Wednesday, but um, in studying it further, uh, it's probably more like 20 to 50, which is a little different. Um, but to me, uh, and because Bethlehem's a small, a small town, and the region surrounding it was rural, but to me, it does not change the atrocity that occurred on that day. It does not change the, the severity of, of Herod's actions and a stat like that would have been of no comfort to the mother who lost her son or sons on that day. Well, we move down to verses 17 to 18. And it says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. Now this is um, kind of an obscure and a difficult passage to understand. Um, and I would try my best to not confuse you or myself as I often do. But in Jeremiah 31.15, Jeremiah, Jeremiah uses personification. And he refers to the mothers of Israel as Rachel. And if you remember who Rachel was, Rachel was the wife of Jacob, as we mentioned earlier. And she was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. And she was barren for a time. And we read in 
in Genesis 31 that she went up to, to Jacob and she cried out to him saying, Give me children or I shall die. As she witnessed her sister and her servants having children. So she was desperate. She wanted children. And especially in those days, as, as you've probably heard before, it was part of a, a, a woman's identity to, to have children come from her. That she was a wife. And so she was desperate. So Rachel, um, so Jeremiah uses Rachel as, uh, you know, to, to refer to all the mothers of Israel. In Jeremiah's day, he's talking about um, the mothers weeping over the fact that their children have been taken off into exile. And that since Israel was in exile, they had, no law, they had ceased to become a nation and in a way had become dead. The, the sadness of the mothers in Jeremiah parallels the sadness of the mothers in Matthew. It parallels it because um, we see the Messiah, the threat on the Messiah was much like the threat on Israel during the, um, during the exile. That they would lose their identity completely. And, that the, and the parallel here is that the Messiah would die and that all hope would be lost. We also see the parallel, the, the mothers weeping um, as their sons are being taken off into captivity with the weeping mothers in Matthew 2 as their sons are being slaughtered. You know, this, these events remind me of a song. A powerful song that was written by the late Rich Mullins. He wrote this right before his death, actually. He never, he never officially recorded this, this song. It's a powerful song, and I'll, I'll read you some of the lyrics here. And they're recounting these events here. It says, Joseph took his wife and her child, and they went to Africa. And the song's called My Deliverer, by the way. They went to Africa to escape the rage of a deadly king. There along the banks of the Nile, Jesus listened to the song that the captive children used to sing. They were singing, My Deliverer is coming. My Deliverer is standing by. He will never break a promise. He has written it upon the sky. My Deliverer is coming. My Deliverer is standing by. And I will never doubt His promise. Though I doubt my heart and I doubt my eyes, my Deliverer is coming. My Deliverer is standing by. I love the words. He will never break His promise. He's written it upon the sky. The picture of the rainbow and God's promise never to destroy the earth and flood as He did before. And the words, I will never doubt His promise, though I doubt my heart and I doubt my eyes. You see, my heart might deceive me. My emotions may get the best of me and I cannot trust them. My eyes might deceive me. My mind might play tricks on me. And those things might deceive me and I cannot trust them. I might doubt them. But the thing that I cannot doubt is God's promise. He keeps them. He always keeps them. God is the deliverer of all time in Exodus. If we go back and we start seeing some parallels here. In Exodus, we find Israel enslaved by Egypt. It was a place of refuge in Genesis, right? Because of the faithfulness of Joseph, the son of Jacob. 
It was a place of refuge, but by the time we get to Exodus 1, we start seeing that Joseph, after his death, was forgotten, and now Israel had become a threat in the eyes of the king of, of Egypt, Pharaoh. He saw them as a threat as they were multiplying, so he said, we need to, we need to work them harder. We need to break their spirits. And eventually he said, you know what, we need to take action. We need to take all of their sons as they're born and toss them into, into the Nile River. And once again, just like in Matthew, the sons are being tossed into the river. Or being executed, I should say, and this time being tossed into the river. Exodus 2, 23-25 says, um, during, those, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out to God for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You see, as they cried, God heard and said, I've made promises to these people, and I'm going to keep my promise. And even as the babies were being thrown into the Nile, God preserved one, Moses and was going to raise him up as a deliverer. In Matthew, we have a similar situation. Israel finds himself under the control of Rome. They were looking for the Messiah, the deliverer, to save them from this oppression. Jesus, like Moses, was protected from a mass killing, and then he fled. Moses also fled later on in his life. Jesus fled to Egypt. Moses fled from Egypt. And it seems like so much was against Jesus from the beginning. Philip Yancey commented on this in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And I heard this quote before I ever even read the book in an audio journal and song called Underdog. They, qu- they, they, they quote this. And I remember it struck me then, and then when I read it again, it struck me again that, Uh, The quote reads as follows, Underdog, I wince even as I write the word, especially in connection with Jesus. It's a crude word, probably derived from the dogfighting and applied over time to to predictable losers and victims of injustice. Yet as I read the birth stories about Jesus, I cannot help but conclude that though the world may be tilted toward the rich and the powerful, God is tilted toward the underdog. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty, said Mary in her Magnificat hymn. It might be easy for us to look at Herod and start feeling good about ourselves. I'd like to ask this question, though. Are we any better than Herod? Are we really? You might be offended I asked you that question. You might even become a little defensive. Of course I'm better than Herod. Of course I am. But if you were in a position of great power, can you say that you would not shed innocent blood for your own purposes? 
Let me just say this, that Herod was not the only one to do this. Okay? Hitler was not the only one to do this. Pharaoh was not the only one to do this. Nebuchadnezzar was not the only one to do this. Saddam Hussein was not the only one to do this. King David was not the only one to do this. And perhaps you may never do what they did and their acts were despicable. Their acts were selfish, heinous. You can come up with your own adjective. You know that they were terrible. Yet, you and I are no better than them. You know, I feel terrible. I really do for, for laughing at Tiger Woods jokes that I've heard. And, um, but you know, I started to ask the question to myself. Am I better than Tiger Woods? See, I can puff out my chest and say, I've never actually stooped that low in my life. But I started to ask the question, what if I really was as famous as Tiger, as rich as him, possessed limitless resources like Tiger? What evil would I involve myself with? I don't know. Would my life crumble beneath my feet like Tiger's? Unfortunately, we hear of regular people, maybe they're wealthy, who travel around the world and, and get involved and partake in child prostitution, right, in places like Asia and, and other places around the world. I have to think that those... Where, where, did, where, did, where did they decide that they were going to involve themselves in such sin, in such disgusting perversion, you see, we are all so corrupt in our being. Some of us have been tempted with things that others have not. And sometimes we become arrogant. I can't believe that person struggles with that or did that or committed that sin. I would never do that. We have a hard time looking in the mirror at our own. And we'd be horrified, really, if people could see our thoughts oftentimes. The Christian singer Derek Webb says in one of his songs, Good Lord, I'm crooked deep down. Everyone is crooked deep down. And we know the saying, right? All men are created equal. And all men are equally guilty at birth. You were born as guilty as Hitler. Herod. Hussein. And all the rest of them. And your fate will be the same as theirs if your faith is not exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a harsh reality. Many of you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and your eternity is secure, but Lord forbid any of us ever take credit for our salvation. It's nothing that we did. It's all that He did for us. I believe it's even Him who opened our eyes to the truth. We cannot become arrogant of this. And I say none of this to justify Herod's actions. I say this to remind us of why Jesus came to this earth to save us from this sinful state that we were born in. There's been so much bloodshed for the sake of Christ throughout history. It began with the bloodshed in, in Bethlehem, right? We see John the Baptist, even Jesus Christ on the cross, all of his apostles, minus one, were murdered for the sake of Christ. Disciples, other disciples were, were um, murdered as well. 
Servants of Jesus Christ throughout history, even to today, are being murdered for the sake of Jesus Christ. And yet, no matter how much blood is shed for the cause of Christ, it will never equal the cost and bloodshed of Christ on the cross. That brings us to to the last portion of our scripture here. Verses 19 to 23, which I call the return of the king. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Uh, By the way, Herod's death, let me just stop here. Herod's death was not glamorous. According to the Jewish historian um, Josephus in his Antiquities, um, it says that he died of this. Ulcerated entrails, putrefied um, and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath. Can that kill you? And neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery. And John MacArthur, he points out that his death was much more fitting than his funeral. For his son, the successor to the throne, apparently put on a great funeral for him. Which is very, very ironic because five days before Herod died, he had just put to death another one of his sons for threat that he was going to take his throne. Even as he's dying. But his death opened up the opportunity for Joseph and his family to return. The comparisons between uh, between Jesus and Moses continue here. Matthew 2.19 says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. We go back to Exodus 4.19. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Midian. We see God God now speaking to both of them. Matthew 2.20 says, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Exodus 4.19 Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Matthew 2.21 And he rose and took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. Exodus 4.20 So Moses took his wife and his sons, and had them ride on a donkey, and they went back to the land of Egypt. Could it be that God was preparing the hearts of Israel for the Messiah all the way back in Exodus? Painting a picture of how he keeps his promises and how he will send a deliverer. Verse 22, And he rose and took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Archelaus was also a violent ruler, and so Joseph said, decided not to go back, but to go to Galilee, back to Nazareth. And when we read, we we read on here, um, it says that he went and lived in the city of Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets, oh, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he should be called a Nazarene. And this must have been a stumbling block for many, for many Jews. First of all, no Old Testament scriptures explicitly says this. This may have been um, uh, spoken by prophets and it was not recorded in scripture. But the idea here is that, that Jesus would 
um, would, be, would come from a place of, of no great reputation. Nobody bragged about coming from Nazareth. And so that was to fulfill prophecies that, that the Messiah would come in a lowly state. And um, I just want to make a, a couple of last points as the band um, makes its way up um, concerning, uh, concerning what we've read here. And um, after I'm done here, I'm also going to invite people to, to pray. If God has been speaking to your heart as the, as the, band, um, as the band plays. But I have a, final, a few final thoughts here. Is there any room in your heart this season for the king? Think about that. What will your response to Jesus be? Will it be indifferent? Will it be jealous? Jealousy. Why do we have to do this? I just want to get on with my Christmas celebrations. I don't have time for God. Or will it be worship? Will our time be centered around worship? Though you may doubt your heart and you may doubt your eyes, you may find security in the fact that we never have to doubt God's promises. He went through so much to be with us and yet we crucified him. Now let us, let us exalt the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.